Nim, of course, means comfort. It's interesting. This message is a, is a message throughout this entire book. He is not named mistakenly, mistakenly, but he is named Nahum, comfort for a reason. This book is a message of judgment. And it's a very simple theme. If you're trying to figure out what Nahum is talking about, this is one of the most neglected books in all of Scripture. What does it mean and what is it talking about? It is very simply talking about judgment, wrath, vengeance that is going to come against Assyria for the way that she, that wicked empire, had treated Israel. That's what the whole book is about. So if you're going to say, what is this book about? It is about Assyria being judged by God in the future. It's very interesting that God will raise up a nation as an instrument of judgment against another nation. And then he will turn around and judge that nation, that judging nation, for its atrocities and for its cruelty. So he will raise them up as an instrument of discipline against Israel, for Israel had sinned, and so Assyria ends up carrying away the northern kingdom. That was a message, clear message of discipline and punishment against the northern kingdom. And then, of course, Assyria hangs around, is continuing in its power and ends up oppressing the southern kingdom. It was a true scourge against the southern kingdom. And so God has finally had enough with Assyria. So the whole message of Nahum is a message of judgment and wrath as a means of comfort to Israel, that is specifically to the southern kingdom, that God is going to serve justice on Assyria for its cruelty and its wickedness against his people. And so God sends this prophet. And he starts out very clearly here saying that God is a God of wrath in chapter 1. God is an avenging God. God is a God of jealousy. We looked at this in the previous week. God's avenging wrath is his righteous and natural response to injustice. God's righteous wrath is his natural and righteous response to injustice. It comes from his very nature. This is not something secondary to God, but when he sees injustice, when he sees sin, when he sees cruelty and the mistreatment of people, and in particular, his people, there is a righteous response in him that is wrathful. And so a person should say, a person who was a Jewish person in the Old Testament, would rightly pray, Lord, will you always allow injustice? This would have been the prayer of a Jewish person. Lord, how long? Lord, how long are you going to allow us to be oppressed by these people? 
Lord, they have taken away our sister kingdom. We understand that your judgment is righteous, but Lord, these people are cruel. Lord, these people are heartless. And God, you have gone with a message of mercy because you always go first with a message of mercy, and that's exactly what he had done through Jonah. He had told the Assyrian people, and in particular Nineveh, to repent. And they had repented, and they had given in to the mercy of God and had seen his kindness and his compassion. But then they had turned right around, and they continued to oppress the people of God. And the right prayer of that kind of person is to say, how long, O Lord, are you going to allow this? God, are you going to simply overlook the injustices that are done? Perhaps somebody here has prayed that. Lord, how long? Lord, how long am I going to have to suffer underneath this particular injustice? And so we have different responses to this. We can see different responses in society. People tell us when you have been mistreated, perhaps you have come into a particular situation in your life where there has been great injustice in your life. And you look at this situation and you say, this is not right. And so the message perhaps to you has been simply let it go. Just let it go. And so this person is struggling. This person in ancient Israel is struggling. The counselor, the psychologist comes along and simply says, if you'll just simply let this thing go, you'll feel a lot better. You don't want to hold this bitterness and this grudge against this person or these people in this case. You don't want to continue to harbor bitterness. You have this bitterness that you're dealing with against the Assyrians or in your life, and you're continuing to struggle with this. But just give up on justice. Give up on vengeance. It never works. So just let it go. And a person is saying, I can't let it go. A group of people, the Jewish people, are saying, where's, where's the justice in this? And if we're, if we're truthful and honest, there is a, a cry in our heart that says, Lord, we long for true justice, your justice, and yet we're being told to let it go. And so a person says, I'm going to let it go. I'm going to simply give up on vengeance. I'm going to simply give up on justice. I'm going to just let it go into the wind. There's a lot of bitter people, people who are still hurt, who are trying to do this mind over matter thing. I've just got to let it go. Just got to let it go. Just got to give it up. Just got to give it up. You say, well, I'm over it. And somebody's talking and then they say, oh, no, 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 you're, you're, not, you're not over this by a long shot. And they say, oh, no, no, I've, I've learned. I've just got to give up on vengeance. I've got to give up on justice. And I've just got to let it go. And this would be the question that a Jewish person would be asking in ancient Palestine. Should I just let this go? Or the, the person who is Jewish suffering under Nazi Germany. Just let it go. Give up on justice. Give up on vengeance. You've got to just move on in your life. You've got to just think happy thoughts, positive thoughts. 
You've got to be spiritual. You've got to move on. And yet it doesn't work. So then some people give into a second response. And the second response is, we're going to get justice for ourselves. Payback time. Life is too short to let it go. I can't let it go. So instead of letting it go, because that's not going to work, and we have seen people who try to simply give up on justice, that doesn't work. So instead of doing that, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take matters in my own hands, and I'm going to pay the person back, or I'm going to pay that group back for what they did to me. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. If they did this to me, I'm going to get back at them. And we see that response. And Israel tried that at different times as well, to take matters into its own hands, and that never worked out well. And there are people today who do the same thing. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. They, they Listen, they thrive on payback. They thrive on it. They can't let it go. That doesn't work. They're not in that group. But they come to the point where they're like, well, nobody is going to protect me. I am out here, I'm an island unto myself, and so what I have to do is I have to fend for myself, I have to look out for myself, I have to protect myself, and so what I'm going to do is if somebody harms me, somebody hurts me, they're going to be in for a big hurt themselves, because they're going to really, really get it, and that never works. In fact, that person ends up hurting himself or herself and hurting a lot of other innocent people along the way when that method is employed. So the question is, how do we, how do we handle this? This is the question. This is, this is why this book is a comfort, because it, it comes to us with a different answer. It doesn't just say, listen, all the atrocities that happened to you, Israel, too bad. Just let it go. Just get over it. And it doesn't come to the Israelites and tell the, the people in southern Judah, here's what you need to do. You need to, you need to get payback. That's, that's what you need to do. You need to go and avenge yourselves. So what is the answer? The answer is found in Romans chapter 12. Why don't you flip with me over there to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Romans chapter 12, verse 17, says this. Repay, repay, well, that sounds like we're going down the, the path of the, the second option here, but it's actually quite opposite. Repay no one evil for evil. Now, let's just stop there. God is saying, somebody does something evil to you, Injustice. The next part of this verse does not say let it go. And it also doesn't say pay them back. These are fleshly, psychologically driven or fleshly driven responses. It says repaint no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. 
If possible, verse 18, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Try, try your best to be at peace with everybody. Don't, don't pay back. You're a Christian. You're a Christian. Listen, Christians never pay people back. Oh, oh, we do. Oh, we do. But the message of Christianity, the message and the teaching of Jesus, is never to pay back evil for evil. But he did that to me. She did that to me. They, they did that to me. Did you see what the Assyrians did to us? Did you see? Did you see they're known for their cruelty? They enjoy it. They got a kick out of hurting people. How sick. But that's what they were doing. This is how cruel this empire was. They enjoyed their maniacal behavior. They, they liked it. They, they lived in malice and in the mistreatment of others. And here comes Jesus in his clear teachings and Paul just echoing the, the teachings of Jesus here. He says, don't repay evil for evil. And then he says, as far as it depends on you, live at, live at peace with all, with all men, with all people. You mean just with the nice people, the people I like, right? Just the people that are kind to me. If they're kind to me, then that's the law of this nation. If they're kind to me, then I'm going to be kind to them. That, that's what the law is, correct? No, the law of Christ is something much different. Live at peace with all men. Even those who are even those who are wicked, those who have come to hurt you, those who accuse you and revile you and say all sorts of malicious things against you, those who lie about you, those who persecute you without cause, those who have hurt you and never said they're sorry, those who have mistreated you and have never come to you to try to make it right, and they seem to just be living fine. Everything's fine. Everything's good with them. They're just, they're just living in this wonderful life. No repentance, no sorrow. And you think, how unjust is this? And then God comes along and he says here very clearly, we're not to repay evil for evil. Or as Jesus said, insult for insult. Listen, you are a Christian. You're a Christian. And this is why we're talking about the difference in, in worldview. It's very easy to know all the things that we go through, all, all of the questions and all of the right answers and know all the right doctrine. But where the rubber hits the road is, is holiness. The way that we act. And oh yeah, we fail. And the truth is we've given into the flesh. You have given into the flesh. I have given into the flesh. And we come to the Lord and we say, oh, Lord, we have not met your standard. You come here to us and you tell us so clearly in your word here, do not repay evil for evil. And the cry of your heart is, but I'm hurting. That was the cry of many people's hearts down through the centuries. Are you hurting today? Are you in some situation today where there's an injustice even being perpetuated against you right now? Are you feeling the weight of what the Jews felt, perhaps not nearly as strongly or as intensely or as powerfully? But perhaps there has been some injustice that has been committed against you. 
and you are saying to yourself, number one, I can't let it go, and yet, number two, I know I cannot, according to the text here, repay evil for evil. That's not what the scripture says to do. Even though everything within the flesh cries out, sulk about it. Just live in the bitterness of your own heart. Retreat. Oh, you might not pull out a gun and go do anything to anybody. But in your heart, you've murdered that person. This is why Jesus says that you've heard it said you shall not, you shall not murder. But I tell you, anybody who has hatred or anger in his heart towards his brother has already committed murder. So it might not be the actual act of doing the actual deed, but it's the dwelling in the heart. It's the fact that the heart has never been torn. The heart has never gotten to the place where it has been truly healed. And so there are some people, they've even learned to have plastic smiles and plastic laughs and phony pleasantries. And on the inside, there's a, there's a, a heart of vengeance. And the Lord comes along and he says, no, no, repay no evil for evil. Then he says, live as far as it is with you. You can't control everything around you, but as far as it lies with you, live peaceably with all men. And then he says this, beloved, never avenge yourselves. That is, don't pay anybody back. Don't take matters into your own hands. This is not about... This is not about protecting yourself. This is not saying if, um, if a robber comes into your home, you're going to just sit there and say, hey, look, the, uh, the cookies are in the cupboard over here, and uh, the bathroom is right down the hall, and we'd be glad to. And no, we're not going to call the police because we don't believe in any kind of justice. No, no, that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about personal insult. You've been personally mistreated. And so the desire on your part is to take matters into your own hands and say, well, uh, as a result of this, uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to pay this person back. That's what um, retribution is. That's what vengeance is. And he says here, beloved, never avenge yourselves. Now notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, and let it go. That's not what he says. He doesn't say, just forget about justice because there is no such thing. You're just in this um, careless, meaningless universe where there is no justice. And that's how a lot of people live. Well, I guess we're just animals and just blobs on this planet. We don't know where we came from. We don't know where we're going. And so... That's that. All is meaningless. That's not what he says here. There, he doesn't say there is no such thing as justice. He says, beloved, never avenge yourselves. Here's, here's the answer. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Wow. You know what he's saying? He's saying God cares about justice. 
And all of the times a person goes, where's the justice? And it might not just be for 30 days or half a year, five years. It's injustice oftentimes for some people for a lifetime. We here in this nation are so blessed. Listen, there are, there are our brothers and sisters in North Korea right now who are suffering in the most atrocious prison camps right now. And some of them are not going to make it out alive. We can say, well, here's what we need to do. We just need to pray that everything turns around in this life. And sometimes the Lord is so gracious and so good. He sets the prisoner free that has been in the prison camp. And we rejoice with the released Christian. We say, yes, sometimes he releases Peter. And sometimes he ordains that he be crucified upside down on a cross. And so we have, we have brothers and sisters around the world and we say, oh, we have it so hard and we have suffered so much. And the Lord is saying to us, oh, dear friend, and he says it here so kindly, beloved. Beloved, you have not, you have not suffered near what many of your brothers and sisters have suffered. But listen, God still cares about the smallest injustice that takes place in our life. He cares about it. And there are all sorts of people saying, I can't let it go. And they're even being told by Christian psychologists, just let it go. Of course, that Christian psychologist does not have his head buried in the word. No verse, or it's a verse ripped out of context. A verse that is no comfort at all. And so a person goes around going, I'm trying to deal with this. I'm trying to deal with this pain, and I can't deal with this pain. I can't deal with this pain. And then others have given in to the equally sinful response of, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I'm going to commit vengeance. No, no. The Lord cares about the smallest. Listen, he cares about the smallest injustice in your life. He cares about it deeply. Say, so where was God? Listen, if God was going to wipe out sin, he'd have to wipe out the whole world right now. But he allows it to go on because he loves us and he wants to see us to see his glory. And so you say, where was God with, when this injustice happened? Oh, he knows, he saw. Listen, he took everything into account. So the answer is not give up on justice or get ourselves vengeance or justice. But the answer according to scripture is give it to God. Give it to God. That's the answer according to scripture. What do we do with the injustice in our life? Is it simply give up on justice? No, that's not the answer. Is it get justice for ourselves? No, that is not the answer either. The answer is give all of our injustices to a God who deeply cares about us. So we live with the constant comfort, and this is why Nahum is such a comfort. Because it says to us, Lord, you have told us we're sinful, and if we tried to take vengeance out on our, on our enemies ourselves, we would, just, uh, we would make a total mess of it because we're such sinners. Nobody here is more spiritual than God. Nobody here is more loving than God. God is a God who cares deeply about justice. And so here's what we do. We simply come to the Lord and we say to him, Lord, you see this. Lord, you see this injustice. 
So I give it over to you. Lord, I, I lay all of my burdens down at your feet. Isn't that exactly what Jesus did on this earth? The Bible says when he was reviled, he did not revile back. He did not pay back. But the scripture says he did something. He continued to entrust himself to the one who judges righteously. He kept saying, oh, Father, Father, you have seen all that I have gone through. Lord, I entrust my situation to you. Perhaps there is somebody here today, perhaps there's many people here today that are saying to themselves, now I get why Nahum is so important because it's saying God's a God of justice and that is a tremendous comfort in my life. You mean he is eventually going to make all things right? Yes. You mean that he is going to come with great justice at the end of this age? and deal with every injustice that has ever been committed against me personally? And the answer is yes. As you continue to entrust yourself to the Lord, just give it over to the Lord. And just say, Lord, I, I trust you that you are a God of righteousness. God, I trust you that you're seeing what's going on. Lord, you might, you might not fix things right now. You might not just completely change things right now. In the next year, everything just changes. Or in the next five years, just everything automatically just switches around and changes. But God, you are a God of justice. And God, you are, you are working on my behalf. And Lord, you are going to make everything. Lord, this is a comfort. You're going to make everything you're going to make everything beautiful, and you're going to make everything right. Now, what does this free us to do? So we give it over to the Lord. We leave the burden at his feet. We just say, Lord, we are not the people of payback. We are, we are sinful, fallen people. God, you are righteous. You are holy in all that you do. God, you are righteous in your wrath. You are righteous in your justice. You're righteous in your vengeance. You're righteous in your jealousy. God, you're righteous in all of these things. And Lord, we simply give ourselves over to you. We give all of our problems over to you. Now, what does this allow us to do? Notice what it says in verse 20 of, of Romans 12. So now we give all these things over to the Lord, this, this, God of, this God of justice. And because it is now being given over to the Lord, notice what we are free now to do. Verse 20, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, pay him back. No, 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 that's not what it says. If these things have been given over to the Lord, if your enemy is hungry, not your friend, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. So now, a person says, Lord, I have given this into your hands. And as a result, because I know you are keeping an account of everything and you are a God of justice, Lord, that frees me to love my enemy. 
What frees somebody in a prison camp to pray for their enemies? Well, according to Romans chapter 12, it's not that they're super spiritual. It's that they have given the injustices and the vengeance and the wrath over to God. And as a result of doing that, as a result of giving that over to God and saying, God, you are God and you are in your rightful place. And Lord, I give that over to you. God, you're more fair than me. You're, you're, you're bigger than all of the problems in the universe. Lord, you're bigger. So Lord, I just, I just give them over to you. And as a result of that, it's not just a person says, well, I was just born a loving person and I just happened to be able to pray for my enemies. That, that's not what's going on. That's not what a Christian does. A Christian says, oh, I, I'm, I'm sinful. Lord, I like payback. Lord, I like hiding in the recesses of my own heart. That's where I like to dwell. But God, you haven't just said, let it go and pray for your enemies. That's not what you've said. Lord, that's not a comfort. Lord, what a comfort is, is for me to say, Lord, I give it over to you. I give it over to you. And now that you're dealing with it, I'm free because I'm just one beggar telling another beggar how to get bread. I'm free to pray for my enemies. And I'm free to say, oh, Lord, would you have mercy on them like you've had mercy on me? Lord, I'm free when somebody mistreats me to treat them with kindness. I'm free. That, that's, that's the message here. And this, this is why when we get to Nahum and this, this book and this neglected book, we go, how is this a message of comfort? The whole thing's about wrath and anger. The whole thing's about Assyria getting torn to shreds. In fact, if you flip back to Nahum, now let's look at what happens to Assyria. It's not good at all. It's not good. In fact, there's this mad dash of destruction. So God is, God is saying, Assyria, I'm coming to you, and I am destroying you. Time's up. So you, you walk away from this message. You say, what is Nahum about? Well, it's about the wrath of God being visited on Assyria for its sin, for its idolatry. God doesn't just visit wrath on people for fun. It's because they are opposed to him. They love their sensuality. They love their, they love their evil. So God says, I'm going to come in, Assyria, and I'm going to destroy you. And the means, God always has means, is the empire, the, the growing empire of Babylon. Babylon is going to come in and is going to destroy Syria, Nineveh in particular, in 612 B.C., they are going to come in and take them apart. Go with me to chapter 2, chapter 2 of Nahum, verse 1. The scatterer, the scatterer has come against you. This is Babylon is now coming against Assyria. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob. Now think about this. Jacob would be uh, taken away. This is specifically talking here about the southern kingdom. She would never quite recover. Oh, she would be allowed eventually, after Babylon would take her away, she would eventually come back in part. 
then you would have uh, you'd have the Persians and you'd have the Greeks and you had the Romans and Israel never really recovered. And then all of a sudden, back in 1948, Israel is planted back in its own land. Could it be that Nahum is even looking forward not only to them just coming back through the centuries in part, which wasn't a very powerful comeback, but is it possible that we are seeing prophetic fulfillment in our own day and in our own time? Here, this tiny nation, God is saying, I'm done with Assyria. Assyria is going to be punished. And someday, Jacob, I'm going to restore your majesty. This is why we, uh, this is why we pray for Israel. God is not done with Israel. So we pray for them. Oh, God. You have your hands still on them. Lord, let us bless them and not curse them. Lord, let us support them. So he says here, for the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob. Not right then, but he is beginning to because he's going to come against Assyria and destroy them. As the majesty of Israel, for plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. That's Assyria. Assyria has plundered Israel, the northern kingdom, and has oppressed and even plundered the southern kingdom. The shield, verse 3, of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. This is Babylon's soldiers are coming in. The chariots come with flashing metal. This is the, this is the mad dash of destruction. On the day he musters them, the cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightnings. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. The Babylonian soldiers are so eager to run in and destroy this great city that they are stumbling over one another. This is the wrath of God. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are opened. The palace melts away. There were three rivers that were running through Nineveh. And outside of the city, they had dams that would hold back the waters. And they had floodgates, and they could open up the gates and allow water to run through the city. So the Babylonians come in and they keep these gates shut and they let all that water build up behind the gates. And then at the right moment, they open the gates, the floodgates, and the water comes rushing into the city, into this majestic city of Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, and destroys it. So here is the Babylonian Empire. And Nahum is prophesying as if it had already happened, even though it has not happened at this point. But he is prophetically saying the chariots are coming in. The floodgates are going to be opened. The city, this majestic and noble city, is going to be destroyed. Nahum, in the power of God, even taunts Nineveh. Verse 11 of chapter 2, if you go down to verse 11... Where is the lion's den? There's actually been pictures found of the Assyrians hunting for lions. And here they are like lions. They like to tear apart their prey. And so God is referring here to the Assyrians as lions. And he's asking, where is the lion's den? He's taunting them. 
Where are the powerful lions, the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and lioness went, where his cubs were with none to disturb? Where are they now? Here are the destroyers. The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. So the one who has been the bully, the one who has torn the nations asunder, now Assyria itself is being torn asunder. God is saying, where are the powerful lions? You used to torment the nations. You tormented the nations all around you. You destroyed them. You took them as captives. You mistreated them. You were cruel to them as a lion tears its prey apart. And now you're being torn apart, O Assyria. There's this certainty of destruction because it's not just Babylon who's doing this, but it's the one who has ordained this destruction, and that is the Lord God Almighty. Look at verse 13 of chapter 2. It's the Lord who's behind this destruction. Behold, I am against you. I am against you, declares who? The Lord of hosts. It's the Lord who is ordaining this. I will. Who's I? God will. And I will burn your chariots in smoke. Even though it's the Babylonians being used as the means, it's God who's saying, I'm the one coming in to do this. I'm the one who has ordained this. I have had enough of their evil. I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messenger shall no longer be Heard. And then if you go over to the next chapter, chapter 3, verse 5, says the same thing. Who, who is the one who's ultimately doing this? We have seen that God is a God of wrath. He's a God of vengeance. Now he's using the Babylonians to come in and to destroy the Assyrians. He says in verse 5, Behold, I again, I am against you. What a comfort to know that God is a God of all the nations. Imagine if, um, imagine if somebody came here to America and said, listen, I'm giving you uh, 40 days to repent or else Allah is going to come and destroy you. Listen, this church wouldn't be shaken a bit. We would say Allah is not God. Or if a prophet from another religion came and said, my God says to you, this foreign nation, he's going to come in and he's going to destroy you. Our God is a God of wrath and a God of vengeance. We would say, give us a break. But here's the true God, the God of all the nations, the God of all the empires. And so he not only has authority to speak to Israel and to speak to Judah, he's not just the God of the United States. He can speak to China. He can say, China, I'm going to set you up. I'm going to throw you down. America, I'm going to raise you up. I'm going to set you down. He can say it to any nation. Why? Because this whole universe is God's, and it's the God of the Bible. And this is why we sing Yahweh, one God in three persons. He's the God everywhere, the true God, the only God. So when he comes in and he says, I'm against you, this isn't like some foreign deity who doesn't even exist. This is the true God. So Assyria needs to pay attention even when it's a prophet coming from Israel saying our God, the true God, is going to come against you. And this is why we can pray anywhere. 
we can pray in El Salvador. Oh, Lord, you're the same God here. God, you're the God of El Salvador. God, you're the God of Cuba. God, you could go in and you could do all sorts of things in Cuba right now if you wanted. God, you raise one nation up. You set another nation down for your purposes. God, you're more powerful than uh, Russia, North Korea, Ghana, the United States. The United States is nothing to you. God, you're more powerful than this world. God, you're more powerful than this church. You're more powerful than uh, our families. Lord, you're more powerful than me. God, you're in charge of everything. And so when Nahum comes and he says, the Lord is against you, it, it means something. Listen, it's bad news. It's real bad news. The good news is peace, and the good news is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The bad news is when somebody says, and rightly so, God is against you. You'd rather have all of America against you. You'd rather have the whole world against you and not have God against you. Verse 5, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. Against who? He's against Assyria. Why? Because he doesn't like Assyrians? No, he loves Assyrians. So I sent a message of hope and a message of repentance. But he's now sending a message of judgment because they refuse to repent. Behold, I'm against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will lift up your skirts over your face. And I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. We know that Nineveh was completely destroyed in history, thoroughly destroyed, almost without a trace. In fact, it wasn't until about 1842 that they began to find traces of Nineveh. It was so thoroughly wrecked and destroyed. One of the excavators, who, an archaeologist who had worked in that region and in Nineveh, his last name is Lanyard, and he wrote this, We have been fortunate enough to acquire, we have been fortunate enough to acquire the most convincing and lasting evidence of that magnificence and power. So they have now found evidence, they have for some time, which made, he goes on to say, which made Nineveh the wonder of the ancient world. And her fall, the theme of the prophets, as the most signal instance of divine vengeance. Without the evidence that these monuments afford, we might also have doubted that the great Nineveh ever existed. So completely has she become a desolation and a waste, end quote. He says, we wouldn't even know historically, other than the scripture, and we know that the scripture is true, but we wouldn't have any evidence. He says, the evidence has come now, we have found some, but she was so thoroughly destroyed that we would never have even known that she existed. So God ordains the destruction of Nineveh. And then lastly, we see here the celebration of the nation. So here, Nineveh is finally destroyed. And what is the response of the nations? You you might think that it is sorrow. It's not sorrow at all. Look at verse 7 of chapter 3. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? No one's there to comfort them. Nobody 
Nobody cares. Nobody's crying over Assyria. Nobody's crying over Nineveh. Then if you go to the last verse of chapter 3, the end of the chapter, there is no easing your hurt. Your hurt. Your wound is grievous. Now notice what it says about all the people who hear about Nineveh's collapse. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. They're clapping. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. In other words, it's saying, Assyria, you have so mistreated the nations over and over again that now that you have received justice, the people are clapping. What does all this point to? I mean, that's the end of the book. Assyria, you have been judged. There's no one to comfort you. In fact, the people that are seeing your judgment are actually clapping that it has finally taken place. We see a God of judgment, a God of wrath here in this text. But we also see the good news of peace. And God says, I am going to someday come and bring peace. How's he going to bring peace? This leads us to the specific news of Jesus Christ who came to this world and loved his enemies. He prayed for those who persecuted him. He was kind to those who mistreated him. Never once did he lash out. Anytime he got angry, it was a thoroughly righteous anger. It was never a personal vendetta. And he walked the dusty streets alone. And then he was hung on a cross. And we see the justice of God as portrayed in Nahum. We say, how can God clear the guilty? It says in Nahum, he will by no means clear the guilty. He doesn't just overlook it. He's a God of justice. He's a God of vengeance. So what did he do? He said, but I love people. So he said, I'll send my son to this world. And he will bear the just wrath of God in their place. So instead of you receiving punishment, this is where the road of Nahum leads us. We can either experience the God of wrath and continue on in our sin and our stubbornness and our good works and our good deeds and saying we're going to just continue to live life as we want to live it and continue in the stubbornness of our heart never breaking, never yielding, always thinking about payback, always thinking, nursing our own hurts, nursing our own desires. And go into an eternity and experiencing the wrath of God, listen, forever. Forever. My son was telling me yesterday, as we were working together, he said, Dad, I had a horrible nightmare and he was telling me about what happened in his nightmare. And then he said, but you and mom and me, he said, we were praying. And I, I didn't really even ask him much about it. But he said, dad, the one thing I came out of that dream, he said, it was horrifying. 
He said, I came out of that dream realizing how awful hell is. And that I don't want to go there. Listen, the wrath of God is real. It is, it is, it is a dark place. It is a place of unending anguish. So you have a choice to go down that path of self-will or you're able to receive the gift of Christ who has come and who has taken the punishment that we deserve on his own shoulders and he is the only one who can bring peace to this world. Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. So if you need peace in your life, if you've been tormented by these things and you need to hand them over to God, he cares. And so we come to him and we say, Lord Jesus, take all of me. Lord, I, I want to experience your mercy and your kindness based upon what you did for me on the cross. I receive your good gift to me. Would you stand with me as we close in prayer? I could ask the band to come. Father, we thank you for this uh, prophetic book. We thank you for the comfort that it brings, the solemnity. Lord, I pray if there's one here today that does not know Christ, that they would yield themselves to you. We're not going to have an altar call this morning, but uh, with every head bowed and every eye closed, perhaps the Lord is dealing with you, not just necessarily for salvation, but something here in this message. Perhaps it's you've been trying to let go of something and you're not being able to let go, and now today you're going, oh, I need to give it to God. I need to give it to God. I need to give it to God. Perhaps it's something else that Nahum has spoken to your heart and you just say, I need to deal with something with the Lord this morning. Would you raise your hand and just say, that's me. Okay, anyone else? Anyone else? That's me. That's me. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. We thank you, Lord, as Elder Frank prayed earlier, that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. God, we come to you and we, we thank you, Lord, that we have been set free we have been set free, Lord Jesus, to bless those who curse us because you have become a curse for us. Thank you for this good news. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.